This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. We returned to the comforting and warm climbs of the Big Finish audio range, and we had a listen recently to the latest McCoy trilogy, Robophobia, The Doomsday Quatrain, and The House of Blue Fire. Welcome to our episode 118 of the Doctor Who podcast. I am Leeson Fisher and I am joining James and Trevor in the campervan today. Hello, Leeson. Hello, great to be Hello, here Leeson. again. Wonderful, you're still here. I'm still here, I'm refusing to leave. Hmm, yes. Well, Trev, what do you say about this? Oh, well, I don't know. After listening to him last week, I'm, I'm feeling very, very scared about my own position on this show. <laughs> mm, yes, you are tenuously perched on that vinyl seat, as, mm, uh, as, as Leeson revealed mm. to the world that we've invested in cheap seats in the camper van in the last episode. Oh, the pink vinyl seats were the, what sold it for me. <laughs> okay, I'm glad you're as tasteless as us then. But uh, just before we get into the serious stuff, we've had an email, guys, and it is a really, really important email because it's all about how Tommy's wrong. And <laughs> give it a oh, quick read. I'm quick. going to. He's not here. <laughs> That's wonderful. This is from Lucy, and she's based in Croydon here in the U of K. She says, "Been listening to your Cyberman episode 112, and for the first time, I can remember Tom is wrong. The classic Cybermen have absolutely no threat in the new series. They took 200 minutes to conquer the universe in the classic series, and the new Cybermen only take 45 minutes to unsuccessfully conquer a shopping centre." <laughs> They are not credible at all. Great show, guys. Look forward to hearing you in 2012. Well, I think that's probably the best piece of feedback we've ever received. (laughs) That is a fair point. (laughs) You can't argue with it. And I'm sure Tom will be sitting there throwing his earphones Mm. out of the car or out of the window or anything. (laughs) But, uh, But no, it is interesting. It's an interesting comparison, but it's probably not completely fair. There you go. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I've just got that vision in my head of Cybermen stomping through shopping malls at the moment, actually. Wandering past JC Penney's and Woolworth's and stuff like that. Mm. Browsing. You can imagine, I, I can't imagine a new series Cybermen browsing. You know, the, old, the old series Cybermen probably would have a browse. They had a bit more personality about them, didn't they? They used to mm. sit and have conversations. Well, they probably needed more parts than the new series Cybermen did, I think. They were always, always they, on the lookout. They probably have to use... I think they were probably a little bit more prone to impulse buying as well, you know, like plastic golf balls, right? I haven't got a shopping basket, where do I put that? Or is this a useful little sticky part here on my elbow? I'll carry it there. <laughs> so, yes, yes, indeed. So there is actually a history of Cybermen and shopping. Is that what we're trying to establish here? Yeah. shall we move on to the review guys let's move on to the review as we promised we're going to be uh, having a bit of a review of the uh, latest McCoy trilogy from Big Finish now they were actually released back in July August September so hopefully everyone's had a chance uh, by now to listen to them all. Now, the first one we want to have a bit of a talk about is Robophobia. And he said his name was the Doctor? Yeah. Is it the same bloke? Sounds like it. Said he was from engineering, but he didn't look anything like an engineer. No, he looked like... Uh, oh, I don't know what he looked like. What was he doing here? He somehow managed to get in when I had the door locked. He wanted to talk about... about Tao. About how he died and... Oh, yeah, he wanted me to look at... His computer. How did you know? Because I've just remembered. He told me to remind you about that. Aren't you, uh... you going to answer that? It's Farrell. So? He wants to hear that I've frozen Tal's body. And you haven't? No. Something that doctor said made me... So you're ignoring a call from the security chief after a murder? Won't that get you into trouble? Not if I'm not here. But y- you are here. No, I'm not. Now, Robophobia, of course, for those who are, who are keen classic series fans, is a little bit of a sequel of sorts to the uh, 
Tom Baker story, Robots of Death, in that it's um, set in the same, I suppose, universe, you'd call it, as uh, Robots of Death was and has the same robots from Robots of Death. So uh, it's a nice little uh, companion piece to that original classic series story. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's good to hear the robots back, actually, because they're one of the few classic monsters, if you like. They're not really a monster, but a classic villain. No, that's not right either. They're a classic race um, who have got an iconic sounding voice. So it's always bemused me as to why Big Finish haven't brought them back a little bit sooner, to be honest. And it, as you quite rightly say, Trevor, it's not just the, the characters they've brought back. It's the whole era and the whole feel of Robots of Death. It's got that Blake 7 industrial... I don't know, entrepreneurs in space kind of feel to it. And uh, for me, I think this is a fantastic story. I really, really enjoyed it. And it does, it does plug in perfectly with the robots of death. It's interesting. I I, I knew it was, um, I knew it was a sequel of sorts. And when episode one kicked off, I was left thinking, is is this just going to be a rerun? Are they, are they just repackaging this uh, for uh, people that perhaps don't know the, uh, the original story? Um, because by the end of episode one, it feels very similar. It's a very similar setup. Somebody is killed. Uh, you, you're sort of assuming it's a robot that's that's killed them. I, I was left a bit up in the air, sort of thinking, oh, well, I, I like the way it's going. I like the fact that the robots have come back. And it was interesting to, to hear the robot voices disembodied from the, the classic design, because they not only sound very good, they also look very good on screen. Uh, so to see that, um, that they, they sound very good on their own as well was brilliant. Also, episode one features some fabulous dark Seventh Doctor. Uh, he's at his manipulative best. The way he, he drifts, he's in the shadows for the whole episode and he drifts out of the shadows and just prompts people with little ideas. And then as they turn around, he's gone. He's disappeared into the ether. Wonderful dark Seventh Doctor. Yeah, and I think that's probably the biggest difference um, to the robots of death. I mean, the Doctor is companionless here. And I, I think looking at the past... Seventh Doctor stories that don't feature Ace or Hex or any of the other companions. I've I've always thought they are quite weak because the writers seem completely unable to come up with something that explains the situation when a Doctor is on his own. So you get the Seventh Doctor talking to himself an awful lot. Mm. And uh, that this particular script, I think it's the first one that Nicholas Briggs has written uh, for a Doctor without a companion, and he does it really, really well. Um, and, and I really enjoyed it. I, I, I approached this... Um, story you know kind of keen to find out what happened after the architects of history which was the story set uh, directly before this and that was the conclusion to the decline trilogy and i it, it just really didn't drop the ball at all uh, for me the suspense was there um, it's quite a long play and uh, anyone who listens to us or any other doctor who podcast reviewing big finishes big finishes is probably quite used to people saying, well, that big finish was too long. It kind of lost my attention halfway through. This is nearly, what, it's 100 minutes or thereabouts, and it didn't lose me for a single minute. It was riveting stuff. It's 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 well worth just sitting down on your own in a room and listening to this without any distractions. I really enjoyed this one for, for the most part. I was probably a little bit bemused. I, I don't think the story itself is big enough to have that manipulative doctor slotted into it and I'm not 100% convinced the mystery was really maintained or or there was enough mystery there even to warrant having this doctor that knew everything but the characters didn't. Um, I, I was a little bit confused towards the beginning because um, the, the seventh doctor was leading on the uh, character of um, uh, Liv Chenka, played marvellously by uh, Nicola Walker, mm. who, who I spent 10 years watching in Spooks. <laughs> um, it, it was fantastic. She, she was really the best thing in this play. Yeah, um, yeah she was good. But yeah, no, she, she was the kind of co- companion for this story for me. And she really, really fitted in well. And I, and I was kind of hoping at the end she might have um, taken a trip in the TARDIS with the Seventh Doctor. But of course, that's not to be. Mm. Um, but yeah, he seemed to spend like the first three episodes pushing the uh, character of Liv, trying to get her to realise what was going on. And I, I, I don't know, for me, the, the, the story didn't seem big enough or complex enough to warrant having a doctor there that was all-seeing, all-knowing. At the end of the day, we, we had quite a small-scale story and a small-scale resolution to it. 
Um, I'm not sure it really fitted having the manipulative doctor there. I think I know what you mean, Trevor. I, I got sort of midway through episode two and I was thinking, could, could all this be solved a little easier if he didn't do all this mysterious sort of hinting and, and, uh, and being all Machiavellian and actually just sorted it out? Maybe lives could have been saved. It seemed a, a bit unnecessary to have all this subterfuge. It was, but didn't you enjoy the ride? I mean, I think, uh, I, I think for the Seventh Doctor to be manipulative, dark, um, uh, not showing his full hands in a convincing way, I, I think you're not going to get a much better example of it. There were some, there were some other big finishes out there where they try and maintain this mysterious Doctor again, most of the time without a regular companion. And I look at. Oh, releases like Unregenerate, for example, or or even to a degree Master. And it doesn't work. It really doesn't work. You just think, well, this isn't maintaining my interest. It's trying to, you know, extend a story unnecessarily. And the Doctor that you get as a result of that isn't that engaging. And I don't think you could say that about Robotophobia. For me, I thoroughly enjoyed the Doctor just slightly nudging circumstances and then disappearing, you know, exiting left really, really quickly and allowing um, things things to play out the way that he'd intended. It's very, very similar to the early Virgin New Adventures Doctor, uh, particularly the Andrew Cartmel stories. Um, the Doctor turns up at a pivotal moment, presses a button and then runs away again. And I, and I really liked it. I, I didn't really think the Doctor was companionless in this anyway. And like I said before, um, I think the Livchenko role was that surrogate companion for this. And because uh, Nicola Walker just was was the best performance in the whole thing for me. So um, I, I think she did play the part of the companion, which is maybe why you didn't feel it was that... Um, companionless. Well, no, perhaps. because all of the other solo Seventh Doctor stories have also got pseudo companions of sorts, but they're not particularly memorable. And I think you are right. I, I think Nicola Walker does a brilliant job here. And if this was a television episode, she would definitely have had her name in the credits. There's, there's mm. no question. Uh, but I think the chemistry between the Doctor and and Liv was was really good. I think if I were to knock it in any way, I think their relationship was established a little bit too quickly. And a little bit too easily. She trusted the Doctor from the outset without any real reason to. And Toby Haddock's performance was, was marvellous. Um, uh, and it, it, it built and got better and better and better as the episodes went on. Uh, He's always good. Yes, he, he, was, he was very good. Uh, and begins the, uh, the story playing the kind of Packer character. Uh, who is very, very subservient around his uh, superiors and then really bullying and intense and, uh, and awful to his, uh, to his inferiors. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Packer because I, I was thinking uh, a slightly less crazed version of Simon Rouse's character in Kinder. The name of the character escapes me at the moment, but uh, but yeah, I think a mixture between him and Packer is a good way of describing Farrell. So yeah, it's a, it's a fantastic little story. It's a murder mystery and an interesting twist on on the uh, on the original Robots of Death story. Uh, excellent Dark Doctor, and we have the introduction in a throwaway remark of the Black Tardis, which is only mm. referred to once in passing as it's described to a superior, and then he's not mentioned again. And I was left sort of thinking, did I really hear that? Did I hear that correctly? Or, uh, or was it just in shadow and it's not referred to again? But I think we may hear more of this later on. So it brings us on to the next one in the trilogy, which was the Doomsday Quatrain. Oh, hello. I think you may have been expecting someone else. Ah, oh, my sincerest apologies, sir. How may I assist? I'm told that this is the residence of Michel de Nostradame. Have you come for a reading? In a manner of speaking. You're not a foreign traveller by any chance? I suppose I am. Why, is that a problem? Not at all, sir. Please, come in. Right. And might I ask who you were expecting just now? Master Nostradamus has been receiving some unwanted attention of late. Obsessive types. Won't give him a moment's peace. If you'd just wait here, I shall see if he's free. Mr... Doctor... Ah, oh, man of learning. The master will enjoy that. So difficult for him to find someone on his own level to talk to. Yes, I know the feeling. I, I, I found this uh, an intriguing little story. Um, what is set up as a very interesting historical story takes a nice little twist, I think, about partway through episode two, you know, without revealing too much, but um, it, it really adds to the... Um, I suppose, longevity of the story too because you, you kind of think at a certain point that maybe it's not going to last the full four eps but then we get this nice little twist to the whole story 
and uh, it, it really sets it up well for the remaining, you know, sort of two and a half, three parts. Um, I, I thought all the performances were, were really, really good. Um, I, I didn't notice this time really that much that Sylvester McCoy was on his own as the Doctor in this story, as he was in the uh, previous one. Yeah, I enjoyed the aliens or the uh, two alien races that we uh, got in this story. They they both seem very, very different to each other and they really, uh, you know, provided some interesting conflict points. Um, yeah, I, I didn't mind the Doomsday Quatrain at all. I, I, I thought it was okay as well. I, I'd been waiting, I suppose, for ages uh, for a, a Doctor Who story to feature Nostradamus. And I guess Nostradamus is the companion for this story as well, really. Uh, it's certainly the character around which events happen. Um, and yeah, I, I liked it. I liked the way that it shifted its tone uh, very, very quickly from the starting uh, point, really. The episode one, up until about, what, the first 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, you thought this is going to be some kind of historical. And then that really wonderful thing that I like about all Doctor Who is when you suddenly get futuristic and historical combined and we're up on a spaceship. I thought that was fantastic. I'm I'm not completely with you on the realisation of the monsters, particularly the conclave, (laughs) Trev. Um, I mean, these are large (laughs) crocodiles. Um, One, they're painful to listen to. And secondly, it's been done before. Mark Platt used crocodiles who walked on two legs in the skull of Sobek, which was an eighth Doctor and Lucy story, I think. And, you know, I, I think the correct term is crocodilian. Um, but I, 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 it didn't work for me. They sounded silly. Um, but at the same time, the story they were used in was actually quite interesting and, and, and quite novel. So I think they just about got away with it. But yeah, I liked all of the characters again. I liked the kind of hierarchy Star Trek setting. And yeah, I thought Sylvester McCoy once again was on was on top form. Not as not as assured as he was in Robotophobia. Um slightly less in control of events. And I think that leads to a more interesting story, certainly. I I think I'll say straight off, I think this was my least favourite of the trilogy. Uh I'm in, I'm very much enjoying the the solo seventh doctor. Uh, this is the first I've heard of him um uh, without a companion and I, I was left thinking of all of the doctors I think he's probably the the most suited to being a solo companion. It seems it seems right. It seems to work certainly in these stories. Uh I, I like the I like the switch that the um that the story does, like Trev said in the first couple of episodes, you settle in, you think it's a, a classic historical, and then it does that wonderful Doctor Who thing of switching things around. Just when you think you've got it sussed, it turns everything on its head. And that came just, in, just at the right time for me, because I was just starting to think this is plodding along a little bit too classic. And we have an interesting uh, twist, which made me think of one thing. Gangers, does that... Uh, <laughs> and yeah, it made me look. Mm, a, I think it was yeah. unfortunate. It was unfortunate mm. timing. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Especially when you look when this was released. I think it was August, wasn't it, last year? Gangers was very fresh in the mind. Mm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's it was a nice. The twist came at just the right time to sort of keep my attention. But uh, on the whole, it didn't hang together as well for me as uh, Robophobia. Excellent uh, portrayal of Nostradamus by David Schofield, though. Yeah, I'd not heard of him before. Not heard of him. He was also the mm. conclave leader, <laughs> so he had um, he had a couple of very very different roles. But I, I think they talked in the extras about the difficulty they had in casting Nostradamus because although people very rarely see him on screen or hear the character on audio, they've got a very firm idea of what he's like, and and, and therefore getting the right voice with the right level of energy must be extremely difficult when casting him. But I, I would agree with you, Lisa, and I think they've, they've nailed it. And I, I'd like to hear David Schofield in some other roles Absolutely. as well. Well, in the extras, he, he did hint that he'd been in... Uh, had he been in a Big Finish before, hadn't he? He has played a character once before. Listening to the mini Big Finish confidentials that come with these releases, I was surprised to find that most of the... Most of the um, surprised to find that most of the actors uh, take on two or three roles. Uh, and I've never noticed this before. Um, and... It's, it was a surprise to find out, and it's, it shows their, their vocal acting talent that you, that you don't spot it half the time. It's something they've done for, well, pretty much since they started, is double up on roles. And I think there's two reasons. One, I think, yeah, there's, there's a lot of voice actors they use who are remarkably talented at, uh, at changing their voice beyond recognition. You look at Toby Hadoke, he's had probably 20 roles uh, for Big Finish. Yeah, I, I think it's something that they do really well. And, of course, bear in mind they've got at their disposal a whopping great mixing desk uh, that um, you know can change voices beyond recognition without any 
discernible effort on the actor's part and certainly the conclave um, leader and his, his colleagues in this um, are unrecognisable. I wonder if the double, the dual role uh, requires a, a dual pay packet. Doing things like that does help them keep the cost down and you know sort of Big Finish isn't a, isn't a massive company by any means so if, if they can double up on roles basically you know they can get I, I suppose twice the value out of, mm. out of their performers in, in, in these dual roles so mm. yeah. No, absolutely. And especially too when for the most part you don't recognise it's the same uh, actor until you listen to the extras and they go, mm. oh, I did two or three or five or six roles, basically. So it's it's some credit to what Big Finish does that they can use the same people multiple times in one drama and no one's the wiser. Well, they've done that really overtly with Katie Manning. There's a companion chronicle called Find and Replace that Ian and Michelle reviewed a little while ago. has three characters in it. has Joe Grant, Iris Wildtime... And the third Doctor, and Katie Manning plays them all, <laughs> mm. <laughs> and it's brilliant. Mm. It's absolutely brilliant. So yeah, they are playing with fans' awareness that the same actress is performing all three roles. But um, they do that pretty much day in day out at Big Finish, and and we don't notice. You're quite right. And I don't know whether I missed this in this episode, but there was no reference to Black Tardis in this this episode. Am I right? No, I I can't remember. I didn't pick up on it. But this 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 Tardis colour thing has been going for a couple of years. It was ah. white in the Angel of Scutari, and this is the same kind of. Uh, I don't know if it's the same kind of line or not. Actually, this might be set beforehand. But yeah, the the, the Tardis has been white uh, and has so far been unexplained, and that's in the Ace and Hex mm. continuity, and it's black in the Doctor's solo travels. And the, the really confusing thing is that the two timelines uh, coalesce. They they cross over each other at times. And certainly Death in the Family brought the past Doctor travelling on his own and the future Doctor travelling with Ace and Hex mm. into the same story. So it becomes really, really complicated. And I have a feeling that crossover point has got something to do with the TARDIS changing mm. colour. The reason the Seventh Doctor's travelling alone, it's it's all born out of Sylvester McCoy's desire to be companionless and we all know what was said to Tom Baker when uh, he he said I want to I want to travel alone um I think they're probably getting it about right now but I I've never enjoyed the seventh doctor on his own it just hasn't worked for me until this trilogy where I think they've really they've really nailed it I'm wondering cuz have we reached the point with the Tardis interior now where we have what is essentially yes, a McGann that- interior because I think all the sound effects we're hearing are the stuff from right. the uh, from the '96 telly movie, aren't That we? took place in Exley's Decays. There's actually a scene ah, where the okay. desktop surface, or whatever it's called, <laughs> um, actually goes through that transition. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering too whether we're actually going down the path of moving towards McGann, like the Sylvester McCoy range finishing, perhaps, and him in inverted commas regenerating, because. I can't remember which audio it was in these three, but there's certainly one or two points where the Doctor is learning a lesson and he seems to be learning a lesson for the future. Like, I'm preparing to regenerate. I'm preparing to have a new persona type of thing. And and he seems to be, in some respects with his mannerisms, moving towards McGann. You are quite right. And I think I've probably got this slightly wrong. It is incredibly complicated. (laughs) Uh, The the Doctor travelling on his own is definitely leading up to the telemovie. It's it's all getting prepared. The problem is they're not doing it story after story. You've already he- heard the story where he changes the uh, the TARDIS into the new ninth uh, into the new eighth Doctor TARDIS. But these stories, I think, are set slightly set slightly before that. And it's strange because I've looked for this kind of continuity or the story order uh, online, and I, I've not been able to find it anywhere. <laughs> So it is, it is quite difficult. Yeah, on the subject of complexity, uh, with Big Finish, what I like about the Big Finish plays, or certainly most of them, is is there's less spoon-feeding done than perhaps in the new series. You are left yeah. to... Um, to You're given very small hints, and and you're left to to theorise on quite big ideas. Like, I mean, the Black Tardis is only referred to in passing, and if you blinked, or is there an ear equivalent of blinking? But if there is, that if you did that, then you would miss it. Um, and... I mean, I, I was left thinking, did I really hear that? And they, the way it's planted in your, in your head is marvellous. That They're far more akin to, uh, to novelizations and uh, adult novels than, than I think the new series is. I like to be treated with the intelligence that, uh, you know, that I can, I can theorise and work these things out for myself. It leaves me 
thinking about them much longer after, after I've listened to them. Um, people talk about his uh, unique um, uh, delivery, and often to me it sounds like he's reading it off the page for the first time. It sounds that, that sort of unsure delivery. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think some people are happy to think that, uh, you know, that that's how he's chosen to play it. Sometimes I think that, you know, the words are surprising him a little bit as he's reading them. Uh, but in this, I didn't get that. It was a more assured performance, and and it felt a bit more fluid. And uh, and I, after hearing the first one, I went back and watched Curse of Fenric, um, and I've I've sort of I, I've I've understood a bit more about the Seventh Doctor and why people like him. Yeah, I know we made that comment when we reviewed um, the, the the last few Sylvester McCoy lost stories that we felt that McCoy was really really getting into the role just a little bit too much. But I, I didn't get that with these three. It, it, it seemed a lot more of a natural performance. And certainly Doomsday Quatrain was, was the one of the three that he really seemed to, I suppose, not be acting, but actually performing his role. I, I just think it depends where the story is set. And McCoy is one of the few Doctors who adjust his performance depending on where in the Seventh Doctor timeline events take place. And I, I don't have a problem with either performance and I'm certainly with Trev when we were talking about the um, Missing Series 27 stories. He played it very, very differently. Uh, but for me, I can I can now dip into the big finish Seventh Doctor pretty much anywhere uh, in his timeline and enjoy a story. Um, whereas I still can't do that on television. There are some McCoy stories. I mean, Curse of Fenric, I know it's revered by fans, but I, I just can't get into it, whether it's the the longer version, the shorter version, whether I just see it in clips. It just it just grates on me. I never understood why that is held in such high regard. It's very strange, Fenric. Last time I saw it, or the time before last, uh, I looked at it and I thought, oh, this, this was why it got taken off the air. This is... This doesn't work for me at all. Um, there were so many reasons I had why I thought, oh, dear. And I don't think I watched it to the end. Uh, and, but this second time I've watched it, now that I've found the key that unlocks the Seventh Doctor, I, I loved it. I thought it was fabulous. Oh, maybe, we'll have to, maybe I'll have to go back and revisit that and perhaps, uh, perhaps I can see another episode of the podcast forming itself on the schedule in the future. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but in the meantime, let's go on to discuss the, the final story in this trilogy, the House of Blue Fire. So what are you, a superhero? It's imperative that you stay together. We will, as long as we're all going in the same direction. You two coming? No, I'm staying here. Don't tell me you believe this weirdo. I don't know, but we've seen and heard plenty here we can't explain. Magic tricks. I can't believe you're so gullible. And what about you, soldier? You coming or not? No. I think I'll stay here too. Please yourselves. Well... Not going to try and stop us, Doctor. Your minds are clearly made up. You got that right. Well, see you round. Or not. Yes, cheerio. Have fun. I came away from this audio, and, and I certainly thought of this word as I was listening to it um, late last week. It seems to be quite derivative. There's a lot in it that reminded me of lots of other things. The first episode in a bit reminded me of Ghostlight with the mystery in an old you know, manor house and weird characters and stuff like that. Um, by the end of episode two, it reminded me of Inception. There, there just seemed to be too many things in there that seemed to be borrowed from elsewhere. And that kind of ruined a little bit for me my enjoyment of the story. When, when I get it in my head that I don't think it's particularly original, it, it doesn't capture my attention as much. Uh, I thought for the most part, though, it was a really interesting story. Um, it, it, it had a lot of interesting things to say, but I just wish it was just a little bit less derivative. It's strange you used to say that you thought it was derivative, because I thought I knew where you were going with that. Because you had two words for the first episode when they were ghost light, uh, and I had two words written on my notes, was God complex. <laughs> And I had to, I had to, because um, you know, people are appearing in, in Mansion House, they're given a room number, they're referred to by their room number, and they're being stalked by their fears. Uh, I, I had to pause it at that point and see who had written it and see if it, was, if it had been um, you know, reworked for the new series. I, but I enjoyed the first episode, um, and there's no Doctor until the, until the very end. And I, li- I liked uh, to, they were quite brave with that, and the, the appearance of the Seventh Doctor in the closing seconds was, was fabulous. But certainly, I, I did get the same feeling as you, Trev, that it was it was borrowing a lot, but it w- it was well borrowed. It was well pieced together, but yeah, it felt it didn't feel too original in all its ideas. Well, it's, it's funny because I didn't get either 
of, of, of those two stories, but I can see precisely where you're coming from, I have to say, um, for, for both Ghostlight and the God Complex. And I, I love this. I thought this was a fantastic uh, story. It, the first two episodes in particular were really, really creepy. I, I think it was it was almost bordering on a horror genre. And uh, you mentioned the writer, uh, Lisa, and it's Mark Morris. And Mark Morris is a famous horror writer who occasionally uh, visits the Doctor Who world. And he's, he's done some really dark and creepy Doctor Who audios in the past. But, but for me, it, it really, really worked. And uh, yeah, I think it's pretty much what you said. It's, it's successful borrowing. And I, I really was happy to go with a ride on this one. I did really enjoy it um, in its uh, execution. Uh, I, and when it did the, it does the switch, the switcheroo after episode two, uh, that's, that sort of blew my mind. And, and again, the same as the Doomsday Cotter, and it came at, at just the right time because you know, the, uh, the first two episodes, I'm not sure how much further they could have taken that. And you find yourself wondering, where is it going to go? And then it goes, you, know, you really didn't expect that at all. And it was at that point I started to get a bit confused by it. I don't know whether, you know, with some big finishes you can, you can watch while you're doing the washing up, while you're tidying up, doing the hoovering, and some you have to sit down and stare at the wall and pay attention. Uh, and I think the second half of this one is one of those. I would have to agree, really. I mean, I, I got to a point in the second half of this story where the whole mechanics of the monster or villain in this didn't really matter. It was a case that it was more about the characters and their phobias than what the monster was doing and or what the big bad of the story was doing. And it kind of lost me a little bit there because I thought the first two episodes really focused on the characters, but then I think you're meant to flip about halfway through once they basically come out of that dream within a dream, basically, and you're meant to start focusing on the monster of the story, which, which is causing all these problems. But it's not a really satisfying monster mm. for me. No, no I, I, would, I would go with that. Definitely. I don't think it was particularly well portrayed. And perhaps there was a little bit of confusion as to whether you were supposed to empathise with the characters or suddenly be invested in the big good versus evil story at the end. And it does become a little bit confused. I do remember thinking that it was a little bit laboured towards its conclusion and that it was it was just taking a very long time for a reasonably predictable ending. I think most people knew how it was going to end halfway through part four. And it's... Yeah, I, I it was it was interesting getting there. I, I will say that much, but I, I don't think it was particularly original. I, I think the reason mm. why I went in with reasonably low expectations is because nearly, I would say, close on two years now, Big Finish have not come up with a really good way to conclude a trilogy. Or um, I've, I've not enjoyed the third story in any of the miniseries for a very long time. And I, I, I got at least halfway through this before I was thinking, I'm really, really enjoying this. And so... I think I had low expectations, but I found myself pleasantly surprised to be still really interested in how things were going to, to sort themselves out. I was a little disappointed in the resolution because I, about mid, well, as the third episode started, I'd sort of decided I think I knew, knew where this was going. Because um, this yeah. is the first trilogy I've listened to um, in chronological order. You know, I used to sort of cherry pick ones that I knew were good because, you know, there's a cost issue involved with Big Finish. And so for the purposes of reviewing this, listen to the whole thing. I always wondered how much I was missing by not hearing a trilogy uh, if there was an overarching storyline. So I was a little bit disappointed that I didn't seem to get any more from listening to the trilogy. They didn't seem to be linked in any way, um, aside from the mention of the Black TARDIS. I think we've really got to stop talking about these in terms of trilogies, just because Big Finish released three in one chunk, basically, th like three mm. within three months. Um Apart from some very, very minor links, they're not really a trilogy. They're all very, very separate stories. They're not now. They used to be. And, and when they first started this, uh, the, the, the three plays were very closely linked. And there are still some that you really can't appreciate as a story as, as much without listening to the other two. Um, this particular trilogy, I, I don't think, is, is one of those. Uh, as you both have said, they are more or less like a mini-season, really, as opposed to a trilogy. And they have very, very small linking or common things. But the, the, certainly the earlier trilogies, you would have lost a lot from, I think, um, if, if you'd only listened to one or two mm. plays. And Trev, going back to what you said earlier, there was actually a, a vocal reference to the interior of the TARDIS. Uh, they, they're shown, and they're not taking in. He opens the doors and shows them, and they say it's like a cathedral inside. So, and I picked up on that. Yeah, and in one of those stories too, he presses the button and like the the view screen on the roof opens uh, up basically, <laughs> and they see the 
I think that even might have been the uh, Blue Fire story. You know, I wish I'd, I wish they'd do that more. You know, I mean, I, I know it's a little bit clunky in audio, um, and, and they've always used the sound effects for the Eighth Doctor's TARDIS uh, where it's appropriate. Mm. But I think the, the use of the view screen, which I think was one of the things that was fantastic uh, about the Eighth Doctor's TARDIS, is so rarely referred to in Big Finish. And it, it's something that they could really do well. It's like having your own IMAX cinema, you know, in your yeah. home. How brilliant is that? Did either of you guys spot spot the nod to um, uh, very early McCoy, the uh, malappropriation? A bad workman always blames nope. his fools. Which, which oh no, which, which made me chuckle and harks no. back to uh, to time in the Rani, isn't it? Where he was doing it all over the place, wasn't he? Oh God! Well, in that case, then I, I've reappraised <laughs> this story. Anything that refers to early McCoy can't be any good. <laughs> I thought it was a nice sort of juxtaposition because because he was playing uh, the the seventh Doctor that that he became, you know, the dark Machiavellian. And there's some very very dark and vengeful speeches in this when he's dealing with the, the Mia Kalarash at the end, the ancient one who by this point I decided must be Fenric because there were so many, it was from the ancient times and because I was watching it sort of um, a parallel, I'd convinced myself that this whole thing was, was going to be uh, you know, the return of the, of the curse of Fenric. I wonder if it works any better if you can try and retcon, you know, telly monsters into uh, <laughs> into big finishes whilst you're listening. Did you enjoy it any more because of that, or did you did you feel disappointed when you realised that there was no no connection? I was a bit deflated because there was no connection, and and, uh, and there wasn't the linking uh, storyline that I was sort of expecting with it being a trilogy. But um, but I, I enjoyed that one. I enjoyed it more than the Doomsday Quatrain, I think. One thing we haven't mentioned yet, guys, of course, is uh, House of Blue Fire introduces a new companion for the Seventh Doctor. He, he travels alone no more. Um, the, the young actress Amy Pemberton, who played number 18 in this story, it now, now travels with him. I, I think there's a strong implication that that is the case, but I, I, it's not particularly memorable. I mean, when I was you know, revisiting my memories, because I, I listened to these plays some time ago, I'd completely forgotten that there was the prospect of the Seventh Doctor having another new companion. And and the reason for that is because it isn't particularly memorable. No, it, it, it was just strange because when the Doctor said, oh, you know, I want you to travel with me, my first reaction was not, oh, joy. It was, oh, really? But that's, that's happening a lot now. It's because they're not really new companions. Possibly because I'd just listened to Robophobia and Nicola Walker. I thought, yes, let's have her as a companion. And I was still thinking about her. And then we get this one in House of Blue Fire, and I went, "Oh, that that's not a good substitute." I'm sorry. I think the ma- I think the maximum number of stories she'll appear in is the next three, and that's it, because that's the way Big Finish seem to be doing it these days. There was there was certainly no no warning. She didn't stand out as a as a particularly interesting character that that you would want to hear any no. more of at all. I mean, unless they've got some plans to that's the idea that, that this is an empty vessel that Big Finish is going to fill, or the Seventh Doctor is going to fill. Um, I was quite surprised, um, and I thought, yeah, maybe it'll be just a just a one-off, one-off trip. And then you listen to the Big Finish Confidential on the disc, and they make a big thing of the new new companion. And I was a bit, bit shocked, a bit surprised. There seems to be a lot of pomp and ceremony about this very um, forgettable companion. I mean, it kind of reminds me when they did that McGann story, where they had the auditions for a new companion, and the one we ended up getting was probably the least memorable of the entire crew. But this, this this is happening a lot now, and I think you've got to look at it slightly cynically. It is a marketing thing. Every time they can bring someone in who they continuously class as a companion, they 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 had this big press release, you know, and it, it's happened. We're going to hear a, a new companion with the sixth Doctor, but you know, the character of Flip, and uh, that's coming up over the coming months. But she's only been contracted for three stories. I mean, she may return in the future, but as far as I'm concerned, a real new companion is someone like Evelyn Smythe, it's someone like Eremem, you know, or Hex. It's someone who comes back or, or doesn't leave, you know, after three stories. But I think all Big Finish are doing are using the opportunity to say, hey, you know, we've got a new companion. They've done it in the Eighth Doctor uh, trilogy that we've yet to review, uh, where Mary Shelley turns up, but quite frankly, could have been anybody. You know, it, it, it's just losing its impact as new companion material. For it's me. a real shame because the first big finish I listened to was um, uh, Blood Tide, and I was blown away by Evelyn Smythe. I thought, what a fabulous foil to the to the Sixth Doctor. This is brilliant. 
um, you know, should have had this in in the TV series. This, and I was I was really blown away by Big Finish coming up with a with a really good, well rounded, original companion. Um, and they, they do seem to have lost that a little bit, I think. Well, there's no real excuse when you're in the audio format. I mean, you don't you're not constrained by TV where you have to have young, pretty things wandering around, you know, sort of filling your TV screen. We're, we're on audio here, guys. You know, we, we can afford to be a little bit mm. more adventurous and try just something just that little bit different. Like Frobisher. <laughs> like Frobisher. You know, yes. I've spoken to Nicholas Briggs about using Frobisher on at least three occasions. And you, do you, you know the reason why he hasn't come back in more, uh, in more episodes or more no. stories? The fish cost too much? No, no, it's not that either. He simply doesn't sell. Really? Now, if you look at the Holy Terror, the Holy Terror is is revered amongst big Finnish fans, and it's one of the poorest sellers. Really? Oh, it's fabulous. Yep, yep. You know, they had Frobisher on the front. So, I mean, Colin Baker talked about this, um, uh, the very first Hooverville convention in, in a railway shed, saying that he would love to work with Robert Jezek again, and uh, that Frobisher is a fascinating character, uh, you know, because it's so unique. I mean, fancy the Doctor travelling with a shape-shifting penguin. I mean, it's, uh, it's obviously it's got its roots in comic book, but it worked so well on the Holy Terror. I think Big Finish are now concerned about its appeal or the character's appeal. And, uh, and, and certainly because Rob Shearman did such a good job on the Holy Terror, whoever else tackles that character almost certainly can't come up with something as good. I mean, I love, I love the idea of playing with the, the idea of the companion so it's not just a human girl or, or a human boy. I think we've only really had Turlow. Are there any other alien companions? But you could really, really play. Chameleon. Chameleon, of course. Yeah, very successful. Canine. <laughs> but this is a Doctor Who podcast we could, quiz. Name we, could have, we could have... You could go anywhere. You could have a cabbage in, in audio form, couldn't you? You could have... Tom Baker could finally... He could finally have his cabbage. Um, uh, so I, there's plenty of scope for playing around with it, and I think I think they maybe should uh, look into that a bit more. Do they listen to this? You should do that more. So all in all, for me, this is probably the most enjoyable trilogy I've listened to so far. Certainly, it's an excellent Sylvester McCoy trilogy, and it is definitely the best that the Seventh Doctor features in without any regular companions. And I, I just really enjoyed all three stories. So yeah, hats off to you, Big Finish. Thoroughly enjoyed this. More of the same, please. How about you two guys? I would have to say certainly the this was the best McCoy trilogy I've heard in a long time. I, I think what really got it for me is they were consistently good or, or they're of a consistent level of goodness. Um, sure, they they all had their faults, you know, sort of minuses and pluses type of thing. But at the end of the day, after listening to all three, I, went, I sort of looked back and went, hey, those, those three were quite enjoyable. Yeah, although I... Uh Enjoyed some less than others. Uh, I, I did enjoy them all. And hats off to Big Finish. They've, they've shown me what everyone else can see in, in The Seventh Doctor. Because previous to that, uh, I didn't quite understand him. And now, now I enjoy The Seventh Doctor. Before we sign out of the camper van for another week, I just want to have a quick talk about another Big Finish audio. It's the subscriber-only release that you can only get if you subscribe to the uh, Big Finish range of audios. It's called The Five Companions. If you don't need me, why are you keeping me here? When we no longer need you, we will exterminate you! Perhaps there's another reason you need me? Silence! We have revised our defensive strategy based on fresh intelligence. We have established a present threat to our force. Under attack! Under Intruder! Intruder! Gosh, that was pretty impressive. Basic combat training. Uh, thank you. And we had the element of surprise. Who are you? Explanations can wait. There are more Daleks around. Now, as I said, this is one you can only get if you're a subscriber, so um, I'm not really sure what any listener who isn't a subscriber can do to actually hear it. Maybe find a friend who, who has it, perhaps, or something like that. Um, it's a bit of a nostalgia fest for Doctor Who fans, really, because as the title cunningly gives away, it's got five companions in it. Now, we've got Ian Chesterton, we've got uh, Stephen, we've got Polly... We've got Nyssa and we've got Sarah Kingdom, as some might say, the forgotten companion from the classic era. And uh, they're all brought together in this story and uh, it's an absolute joy to actually hear them again. Um, It took me a while to figure out it was actually Polly 
because it's not often you hear the character of Polly in anything Doctor Who related because half her stories are missing and uh, I, I don't think I've really heard much Big Finish output with her in it. So it probably took me half this audio to actually figure out that that fifth companion was Polly. But the other ones were a joy to hear. Ian Chesterton sounds like an older version of Ian, which is fantastic. Stephen still sounds like he's Stephen from the 60s. Um, Nissa was great, although she was more of a foil for the rest of them. And um, Sarah Kingdom. Sarah Kingdom was an interesting choice because... I'm not sure the audio fully explains how she can actually be taking part <laughs> in this story, despite it doesn't, <laughs> not at all. Uh, yeah, it's it's kind of weird because um, the mechanics of the story have all these companions being yanked out of their time stream, basically, and you're sort of meant to think at one point, ah, Sarah's just been pulled out before she's been disintegrated by the uh, time destructor from the Dalek master plan, but no. She actually mentions that she was killed. And one of the characters said, I saw you die. And she says, I know that. I don't know why I'm here either. So she, she was a bit of a bemusing inclusion for this story. It was actually a, a, quite a clever little drop in there. I and mean, bear in mind, this is a subscriber only. So the people it's playing to are those who will appreciate the other ranges. And the way Sarah Kingdom manages to continue to exist is explained in a Companion Chronicle trilogy, which Simon Gouye wrote that. <laughs> I knew you'd mention a Companion Chronicle I hadn't heard Afraid yet. So. There's three there of them. <laughs> it's called Home Truths, um, The Drowned World, and The Guardian of the Solar System, and they are well worth a listen to. They really are very, very good. Oh, but I, go. I would agree, this is a great nostalgic romp. And once again, Trev, I'm agreeing with you far too frequently <laughs> these days. Uh, I would say the only character that, that didn't work for me is Anique Wills Polly. Um, far, far too far removed from her original portrayal on on television, I would say. It, it was a joy to hear because there were, there were Daleks and there were some Tyrans and there were dinosaurs and you name it. It's one big party, basically. The only thing that suffers is the story. Um, <laughs> and the, the, the last 20 minutes, is, is well, there just isn't any, frankly. The, the... I, I think it's like the um, story that it homages quite heavily the the five doctors from the 80s um you know the five doctors really doesn't have much of a story and i think the five companions certainly continues on in that merry tradition of just having an excuse to bring all these characters together in one room basically it could have been any of the companions frankly it didn't rely on the listener being aware of any of the characters storylines with the exception of sarah kingdom but the, the last 20 minutes, I mean, I know the last 20 minutes of The Five Doctors is fairly slow-paced as well, but it's it's just enjoyable. The last 20 minutes here is them trying to escape something that you know they're going to escape, and unfortunately the remainder of the story just disappears. But but I'd still say it's well worth listening to. I was I was looking forward to this more than I was looking forward to The Doctor, The Widow <laughs> and The Wardrobe, um, and, I, and I think I ended up enjoying it about the same amount, I have to say. But uh, it, it's still worth taking a listen to, certainly. It's funny you say, James, that this is a subscriber special, uh, and I've I've never heard a subscriber special mm. before. Uh, are, do they tend to be, uh, a, so, like you say, written for the for the fans, a bit more of a fangasm and, and a bit a bit of fun rather yes. than so it's continuity heavy. It's all it's all very in jokes and uh, in stuff rather than a coherent story. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Um, they, they've done a trilogy of returns. You've had Return of the Crotons, Return of the uh, or Return to the Web Planet. <laughs> Uh, there's been the Four Doctors last year, which was e- exceptional. That was a really, really good story. Um, and there's been lots of others that I can't remember. But yes, basically, you're quite right. It's it, it's a party for fans. I'd be mean to ask about the multi-doctor big finishes because uh, the only one I've heard um, was Sirens of Time. <laughs> and I wonder, I wonder whether any of any of them worked very well because they're quite difficult to write for for all the characters, and they certainly failed uh, on every count in, in Sirens of Time by doing the separate. The separate stories, uh, so I've not been tempted to, to listen to any more. It was interesting in Sirens of Time that um, obviously they were all returning to the characters after a long time away. Like you say, um, Annika Wills obviously had a, a long gap in between playing that character again and, and found it hard to, to get back into it. I think the only Doctor who gets away with it in Sirens of Time and seems to fall straight back into it was Colin Baker. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. I agree. I agree. I mean, I I think it's worth taking a listen to the four doctors. That will probably that's probably the best multi doctor story that Big Finish have produced. I'd steer clear of Sagreus. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are a couple of other multi-doctor stories too, but I'm not going to tell you what they are because they come as surprises and they're not actually known uh, oh. a lot of the time within fandom. But yeah, I, I think I think multi-doctor territory is always dodgy, but Big Finish, I mean, they've really come up with some clunkers, as you say, mm. Sirens of Time is, it's, I mean, Zagreus is worse. <laughs> it's really, really bad. But, but, but concerning Anique Will, she has returned to the part of Polly on a number of occasions. And, oh. you know, it, it, she knows the big finish set up really, really well. And she's done a couple of companion chronicles as well. She also played Charlotte Pollard's mother, I mm. believe, uh, in a couple of, um, a couple of stories. But unfortunately, she didn't really gel for me in this, this particular so Sorry. she she hasn't had any trouble finding the character in previous ones. I think she's been better. Well, because she's playing an older version of Polly in the Companion mm-hmm. Chronicles, and it's all about her. Ah. This time, she's got to bring something unique to the party, and the thing that fans want to hear is a pretty much a replication of what she did on television, and she doesn't mm. do it. I think um, Nicola Bryant's quite good at doing that, uh, hi- hiring a voice to do the like the 19 year old Perry that's right uh, in Piscon she's uh, mm. skipping between the two and I think it's, it's quite it shows her vocal range it must yeah. be difficult to do so many years after the event I certainly don't sound like I did when I was 18 next week what do we have next week we've got coverage of the big blue box convention and that's going to be a bit of an interesting episode. We're going to have Ian and myself on location. And Trev, you're going to be joined by someone else in the studio, I understand. Um, yes, indeed. Next week in the studio with me will be Michelle, our intrepid big Finnish reporter and reviewer, who's also a moderator on our forums. Now, as of recording, we actually haven't been to the Big Blue Bots convention yet, so uh, James and co. have that to look forward to in the very near future, and I'm uh, very much looking forward to uh, hearing what you guys get up to. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to going, I have to say. At the time of recording, it's just a week or so away now. And yeah, it'd be really, really good to see Louise Jameson. I don't think I've ever seen her at a convention before. Say hello from me. I will, yes. So she's, you've still got the restraining order in place, Lisa. Yes, that's unfortunately what I won't be able to attend. <laughs> okay. I'll, uh, I'll just show her the, the, the photograph and uh, record her reaction. <laughs> <laughs> so I will see you again in a couple of weeks. Uh, but in the meantime, this is me, Lisa Fisher, saying goodbye. And this is Trevor saying goodbye. This, this is James saying goodbye. Goodbye. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. And in the meantime, no, that's no good. There's no meantime. <laughs> There's no meantime. I'll tell you what, Lisa, the world you... has lost its mean of time. Oh no! God, <laughs> time has lost all meaning here in the Doctor it Who never had any in the first place. I don't think but, uh, <laughs> meaning has always been optional extra.